What an interview. Ben is, he's a gracious guy, a guy with that much um, expertise in his field. I, I find him fascinating to listen to. I really enjoy his videos, but it was wonderful to finally sit down with him and talk. Um, th that, that third section of his book kind of blew my mind. A lot of what we read, Christine, you, you know this, isn't new information to us um, because we do do a lot of reading. We interview a lot of people in this field. So it's, it's not often where I find myself like saying, wow, and his book did that to me. Uh, I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for the recommendation. What did you think? Uh, you know, I thought his book was very persuasive. Um, I, I just can't emphasize enough how important understanding uh, this type of perspective and background is it has made parts of the Old Testament come alive for me and make so much more sense compared with my past understanding. Um, so, and I was really glad to talk with him today. Um, I think I think one of my favorite answers is when he says, I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. There are some people who just want to know everything say they know everything, act like they know everything. And it's refreshing when people say, I, I'm not sure on that one at this time. Um, it gives us room to learn and grow. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. Um, but no, that can't really be my favorite because he had so, so much good insight to share. That, it could uh, be your favorite. I love when an expert breaks the mold or at least the character of themselves because Dennis Venema said that too. He said, that's outside of my realm of expertise. Yeah. I love to hear that because it shows that these guys aren't eggheads, that they're, they're humble and they, they have an approach to the truth that's reasonable. You know, so that could be your favorite. <laughs> your favorite uh, answer. I, I guess to me that that means to uh, he's not buying into some conspiracy where he just has to have this answer and mm. toe the line. Uh, he actually just doesn't know. And, and some okay. people who get thrown off their horse of certainty get back on a horse of certainty where they, they uh, do trade views, but they don't really trade their demeanor. They haven't really yeah. allowed sure. the experience to humble them. And that's what I love about a lot of the people we interview. And of course, Ben, Ben is one folks. You're going to love this interview. Yes, absolutely. Uh, today we have Ben Stanhope. He's the author of this book, Misinterpreting Genesis. Uh, he served as a Garrett Fellow in the Department of Literature and Culture of Boyce College, holds a certificate in worldview from Biola University, a bachelor's from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and a master's degree in manuscript cultures from Hamburg University in Germany. Thank you for joining us today, Ben Stanhope. Um, well, let's and... let's just start with let's start with your background. And you grew up in, as a missionary kid. Um, tell us where you grew up and what it was like serving, and and just some of the perspectives that you gained from that experience that maybe are diff different from a typical American. Uh, there, that's not too much to brag about, but I think I was probably roughly like six to eleven years old. 
Um, my dad was a pastor and my parents were missionaries before I was born. They were missionaries in Mexico. And then, uh, yeah, around like five or six years old, we moved to uh, Costa Rica and lived there for three years, then Dominican Republic for two years. So mostly what I remember about that as a kid is just like all the uh, crazy flora and fauna that I grew up around. Uh, like one time I remember opening my underwear drawer, I think it was in uh, Dominican Republic when I was a kid, and there was this big red hairy tarantula that was nesting in it. Uh, uh, we would like when we would run water for baths, there would be tiny, tiny frogs the size of like pinheads, like hundreds of them in the bath water. Uh, I can remember one time, I think in Costa Rica, we had a giant centipede in the living room that was crawling around. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was a really cool experience. I, I don't think I'd trade it for anything. Uh, growing up in those conditions, I'd probably hate it as an adult because of all <laughs> how terrifying a lot of the insects are. But uh, yeah, yeah. I spent most of my time growing be... up just chasing lizards in the yard. Wow. Yeah. So you grew up in, in a Christian home. Uh, yes. Uh, what was the nature of your understanding of Genesis growing up? Were you a uh, young Earth background? I was extremely young earth. Uh, I had dreams growing up that maybe I could become a scientist. And uh, like, I remember reading young earth literature and it would talk about maybe there's like uh, Makila Mbembe out in, out in the Congo, this alleged seropod that's still alive. And maybe I could go discover it. Uh, <laughs> I read uh, a lot of like answers of Genesis liter literature growing up. And uh, I was extremely invested in young earth creationism. I thought Leviathan was definitely a dinosaur or I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to say dinosaur cause he's aquatic, uh, an ancient reptile. Um, yeah. so did you notice like cultural differences when you were, um, growing up in the Dominican Republic or Costa Rica, um, and, and connect that all at all to cultural differences in the biblical stories, or did you just kind of not catch that because you were a kid? I was a kid I didn't catch catch on to that too much but I got into Old Testament studies was uh growing up I was always interested in like uh really weird kind of esoteric things and you're not like uh yeah I, I eventually uh I was studying ghosts in the Bible and like uh, a lot of like uh concept of the afterlife and that sort of thing and I ended up coming across Michael Heiser's blog so this was probably in high school and uh, Michael Heiser was, he was the first scholar I'd ever seen that like, uh, he went into like ancient Akkadian literature and Ugaritic literature, these cultures I'd never even heard before. And he was showing like, look, word for word, they had the exact same like concept of these spiritual beings. And you can see where there's an interplay between the Bible and concepts in those texts and they mutually inform each other. And it just totally blew my mind. And I was hooked on the Old Testament after that. Oh, my daughter is reading Michael Heiser's Unseen Realm right now. And we were yeah, talking there, there about- Yeah, there's a scholar like him out there. He's, his yeah. work is incredible. Yeah, she's just like, I never really thought about this before. And now that I'm reading it, I'm seeing it in scripture too. So 
Um, I love those kind of aha moments. Uh, John Walton was like that for me too when he talked about the temple cosmology and now all throughout scripture you just see this these references to temple and temple temple texts. So you got really hooked into the Old Testament. So what what led to writing this book? Misinterpreting <laughs> Genesis. Uh, my first my first couple of years, I'll oh, go ahead, John. Just before you get to that, um, we're skipping over one thing, Christine. I'm gonna, I, I want to go back, and that oh, sure. is the friction. Was there any friction? Was there any conflict or crisis um, from growing up wanting to be a young earth scientist and believing that Leviathan? You know, I read the remarkable record of Job too. I think it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. having a concordist view like that and, and believing that, you know, the Bible does uh, teach this young earth. Talk to us about the growing pains through that. Was it painless or was it a struggle? How long did it take? Uh, or was it just in an instant you saw Michael Heiser and, and then you said, oh, I must have been wrong. I mean, take us through that. Before I discovered Michael Heiser, I had spent... Uh you know, years on the internet. I remember when YouTube was kind of a new thing and I was growing up on the internet sort of engaging with it. And uh, atheists were like pretty dominant on the platform at the time, like guys like Thunderfoot. Um, and they were just, so So I, I grew up like listening to Kent Hoven, for example, a ton, who's absolutely crazy now <laughs> that I, uh, looking back, but I brought all of my young earth creationist arguments to the internet and the internet just totally steamrolled me uh, every single time. <laughs> and I could, I could, there was already this massive, massive uh, issue that I was seeing where my young earth creationism wasn't standing up at all. So when I discovered Heiser and I was discovering that the Bible was a lot more sophisticated, it was actually, uh, it was totally wonderful. It helped me out a lot. Mm. Well, and you say in your book, too, that you were really reading and studying the Bible for yourself for the first time, too. Yeah. How did yeah, that happen uh, to you? I think I hate to keep going back to Heiser, but uh, yeah, there's there's so much like uh, in the Bible that when you when you start to study it from an ancient Near Eastern context, it just it makes it a lot of people are afraid of it, but I, I absolutely love it because it makes all these old texts that you've looked at a thousand times, like a thousand times come to life and it looks like you're viewing them for the first time. Yeah. It, and they make so much sense, like passages that seemed odd or, you know, you just kind of skip over it or read it quickly or, they don't have a whole lot of meaning in our culture, have so much more meaning and depth when you understand their cultural placement. I think the difficulty comes in, and it doesn't sound like this was your experience, Ben, but I think the difficulty comes in with people who've grown up not with young earth creation as such, but with this idea of biblical inerrancy that God wrote the Bible, that... Um, yeah. Well, while the pen wasn't in his hand, he whispered into into holy men of old, and so it's divine wisdom, and so it, it's all 
you know, gospel, whether it's history or science or, and, and the confusion of genres too, I think is part of it. So I think when some people have the floor fall out from under them, it's not necessarily that it's shown them that the earth has to be older than 6,000 years, but it's this coming to grips with maybe the Bible wasn't written by God, you know, and how do I deal with that now? And the kind of binary that they're given growing up, like Ken Ham does give, which is this is not an argument of the age of the earth. This is an argument over biblical authority. So um, I'm, I'm pleased to hear you didn't go through that, but I have talked to a lot of people who don't make it beyond that because of the binary. They're not more fascinated with the Bible, but they lose complete interest in it because they don't see it now as different than the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Bhagavad Gita or, or Aesop's Fables. Um, have you met people, have people responded to your book that have had that happen? So far, no. I think because the type of people that have been buying it are the type of people that are already familiar with guys like Walton. But uh, I'm trying to think here. Definitely, I think it's true that people like uh, they oversacralize the Bible to the point that they're like applying this ridiculously literalistic understanding of, of its inspiration that it has to be word for word dictated by God. So when uh, I did have something something of an experience like you described, like, for example, I, I found out I was reading my Bible one day and I found out in the footnotes David was praying to God and he said, Lord, you instruct my kidneys. I'm like, why would the Bible say that? Why is David saying, God, you instruct my kidneys? And then I went and looked up in the Bible dictionary and found out ancient people believe that the seat of your consciousness is partially in your kidneys. And they believed it literally. <laughs> so that freaked me out a little bit. Um, and I think it was. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess I'll leave the thought there. Yeah, and I want to get into that because the part of your book that was fascinating, I'm going to defer to Christine here because I'm jumping way ahead now. But one of the uh, aspects of your book is you bring out the Apostle Paul's understanding of why a woman should keep her hair covered, um, which, I, I'm, yeah, it's your hairstyle is blasphemous, Christine. But, um, uh, and, of course, mine, you know, uh, I'm... Uh, very virile being a bald man but um <laughs> so i do want to get into that because that I, I think that could be a real punch in the gut for some believers but so much of what we see in theology and in denominations are people trying to do mental gymnastics around these things that when you understand the them in the genre and the culture in which they were written as Christine says, it makes so much more sense. But does it devalue the Bible as the word of God when you find out that actually Paul was wrong about the hair thing? But let's come to that later. Christine, jump back to where you wanted to go about the inspiration for writing the book. Go, go ahead. Yeah, tell us, about, tell us about your research and what you're doing and um, what, do you, what you've been studying and academic research, which kind of led into developing this book? Well, the book itself, uh, the idea from, for it came like in the first, 
I think year that I was at seminary, me and two of my friends got the idea that it'd be fun to, neither of us were, old, were young earth creationists. We got the idea that it'd be fun to go to the creation museum since it's like an hour away from us. <laughs> and uh, it was my first time ever going. So we went there and we, we were expecting to kind of like uh, laugh about a lot of the scientific stuff that we disagreed with. But what totally blew us away was, you know, as biblical studies students was how many uh, just blatant errors in terms of biblical studies there were within the museum. So, um, for example, uh, we were walking through and there, there's a display with Moses holding the Ten Commandments. And like uh, we looked at the Ten Commandments and they're written in this later Hebrew script. They're not Paleo-Hebrew. It's the Ashuri block script, which is anachronistic. There's vowel points in it, which weren't invented until the Middle Ages. The letters weren't spaced properly. Whoever like copied the Ten Commandments on it didn't understand the Hebrew alphabet. So they switched letters like Kaf and, and uh, Dalit, for example. And, and the Ten Commandments like actually said like they actually made some sentences that were pretty funny because <laughs> they were misspelled. But and then there were other things like uh, I remember there was a display in the museum that we noticed where it said Voltaire's house was turned into a Bible factory after his death, which is something that the Creation Museum website itself uh, refutes and warns Christians not to use as an argument. So I, I wrote up a blog post listing a bunch of the errors that we noticed in, in the museum and some of the photos that we took of like dis displays that were incorrect from a biblical perspective. and. It got like 10,000 views. It was shared all over the web. And I thought, wow, there's a lot of interest in this. It'd be, there's enough here, enough errors that I cataloged just from that one visit that I think I could like draw it out into like a full form book and people would actually be interested in it. Well, I've got I, to ask you. Not just a little book. I mean, it's, it's, it's got some <laughs> substance to it. I, yeah. I've got to ask you, considering the recent dust up between <laughs> Phil Vischer uh, of VeggieTales fame and Ken Ham, are you sure you wanted to kick the hornet's nest? Because uh, I know the pursuit of truth is, is an honorable thing, but Ken Ham is a vicious person. I actually have a theory that it was Ken Ham's demeanor um, that softened the evangelical public for Donald Trump. I, I really think that people got well, used to somebody. He's, he's being definitely cool. got a really disagreeable personality. You have to be to to run like what is it like? The Ark Encounter is a hundred million dollars, and the Creation Museum was like twenty-seven million dollars. Like to stand up against all that opposition, like he does, <laughs> you you have to be an incredibly disagreeable person. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's so a marketing did, genius, though, too. Uh, you know, I, well, and he, doesn't I, have, I he doesn't have any biblical studies degrees or anything. Yeah, uh, it's really easy to sell conspiracies these days. So maybe he's not such a genius, but. Um, well, yeah. if you look at if you look at Ken Ham and AIG um, compared to other creationist organizations, they're all like trailer court compared to him. I mean, his publications are really produced well. I mean, 
um, other than the mistakes that you've been mentioning in, in the Hebrew and so forth. I mean, they're color photographs. He, he, he tapped into this understanding that children love dinosaurs, so they're filled with dinosaurs. I mean, so a part of that and the fact that he went into homeschool curriculum, and he, I think you're right about the marketing genius kind of thing, because you, you see other creationist organizations, and, and um, if you go to the museum in Dallas or, or some of these other places, you're like, wow, this is, this, is, this is pretty bad in comparison. He seems to have, he's the Lex Luthor of Young Earth Creation, <laughs> you know. So yeah, and they, right they that. Did, actually, did that give you any, did, did, did your, anyone advising you and your family or people close to you worry about the fact that just how he deals with people? I mean, are, are you, are you worried about a backlash when, when you uh, land on ham and eggs and Paul Ogia invites you on to talk about what he's done, how he's savaged you on Twitter? Academically, I, I have no fear really just because it's not difficult to correct a lot of the stuff that's going on in the museum. But they did last time when I did write that blog post, they did end up changing out some of the displays and I, they're going to have to change some of the displays that I, that I uh, critique in my book because some of them are just so blatantly inaccurate. Uh, just like so, some of the petroglyphs, for example, where there's now published studies showing that they're inaccurate. I think that I can't, I can't believe that he still has these Leviathan displays in the museum and that it's still like a, a popular creationist argument with just how powerful, for example, the Ugaritic comparative literature is. So it kind of it kind of blows my mind that he does that he does still hold some of those beliefs. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Your book is divided into three sections, and you you mentioned Leviathan. Leviathan and Behemoth are are, are two of the and the dragon myths um, come up in that first section. And I first was introduced to Leviathan um, through the mar remarkable record of Job and and the descriptions and so forth and and uh you kind of want to believe it as a young earth guy but uh, you just mentioned something that ken ham hasn't changed about leviathan because you're using the strength of the evidence from the ugaritic literature but doesn't he dismiss wholesale this idea of waltons and yours that we can um allow our theology to be fine-tuned by anything uh from secular <laughs> science or from modern discoveries. In other words, um, if uh, Luther didn't have it on his desk or Augustine on his, why, why would God be so inefficient that he'd wait till somebody kicked over uh, an ancient Assyrian Sargon's library in 1850 for people to make sense of Genesis? That's a complex question. Or but in that case, it makes I, sense I think that I think that is a that is like a, a ma the main difference between me and the Creation Museum, for example. And there, I have a, towards the end of my book, I, I list out direct quotes from a lot of guys like Ken Ham at the Creation Museum that where they say directly, "You can't use ancient Near Eastern literature to contextualize the Bible in such a way that it would make a major changes in interpretation," because they 
they theologically have an inhibition against understanding their Bible. They don't believe that God would ever reveal it in such a way that uh, this these new discoveries, for example, the Enuma Elish creation myth or uh, these other texts neighboring Israel that mention this chaos dragon Leviathan, they don't believe that God would ever uh, place information in those sources that would reveal information about the Bible that, like, for example, Martin Luther wouldn't have had access to. But uh, theologically, how people work out why God would do that sort of a thing, I'm really not as much interested in as much as the fact that you can prove that these texts do contextualize the Bible. In, in the book, I try to uh, show how with all of these examples that I give, how it's pretty much undeniable that these ancient texts contextualize the Bible in pretty interesting ways. Well, you mentioned Luther. We mentioned Luther a couple times now. Um, and I, I, it's been a while since I've read your book, but I know that you have a video where you kind of suggest that Luther could have worked for AIG in, the, in his response to the understanding of clouds. Um, and uh, was it the water above the firmament and his approach to that? Um, can you talk about that for a second and how that fits in with the way I, AIG understands or approaches the Bible from what Ken Ham would call, um, the, you know, inform deriving information from what he considers is a fallen world that's not trustworthy. So uh, Genesis, I believe it's chapter 1, verses 6 through 7, talks about how when God created the earth, uh, he divided, the, he divided the, the sky from the chaos, and like above the sky, it talks about there are these waters above. And these show up in the Psalms and other places in the Bible where there's the phrases, there's waters above the heavens. And... Uh, so the Creation Museum, they believe that those waters above the heavens, they use, a lot of creationists used to believe that it was this like great canopy of water that was surrounding the Earth's atmosphere. And then God collapsed this canopy of water in order to bring about the, the great flood. But the problem is there are Psalms that actually say that it's still up there. So uh, the Creation Museum believes that when the Psalms talk about praise him, praise God, you waters above the heavens, that it's talking about uh, ice particles on the edge of the literal space-time universe, and what I'm trying to—I'm trying to recall what your question was exactly. But what I argue in the book is that, well, if you go to ancient Jewish texts, uh, ancient like ancient rabbinic texts, they still believe these waters are above the heaven, and that the heaven is literally a solid firmament. And then uh, if you go to text of Israel around the same periods that the Bible is written, for example, ancient Egypt, they also talk about literal, like a literal ocean hanging above the firmament of the heaven. And the reason why the Bible, of course, even brings up the, the whole thing is because it's such an important aspect of ancient Near Eastern cosmology for God to, to divide the chaos and to create the separation and chaos in this bubble where like all of the universe can be sustained is very important for uh, 
emphasizing God's power over creation. But let's see, I'm trailing off here. Uh, did, did that answer your question? I can't remember specifically what it was. Yeah, just the, the relation. Luther's answer about that um, at the time when, oh, yeah. when science was kind of saying, uh-uh, um, uh, or the science of his age was kind of saying, no, this, uh, his answer at that time is virtually word for word what Ken Ham says in our time that you're, you're either going to believe the Luther Bible does or better you're... than Ken Ham. He does. Okay. Luther argues, he argues that the, that there's a heavenly ocean still up there in his time period, even though all of the scientists of his day were discovering, no, it's not. And they, they believed in the crystalline sphere theory of Aristotelian cosmology in Luther's day. So, so Luther says like, and he preached that, no, we, we have to still believe that the Bible's so clear about this ocean above the sky that it's still there. Um, and what the Creation Museum does is they they know there's no way that there's an ocean above the sky. They can't believe that anymore. So they just pushed it out to the edge of the literal universe. And they they literally believe that ancient Israelites were like praising hymns to God, singing about like Einsteinian general relativity theory and, and how there's these uh, these waters out on the edges on the outskirts of the universe that somehow praise God. Um, well, you know, another thing that you talk about in your book in that first section is the flying serpents. Um, tell us what flying serpents are and, and why the Bible isn't really talking about dinosaurs or pterosaurs. So this, this intersected with uh, my research in Germany on my master's thesis. So I studied uh, ancient Hebrew seals. So if, if you remember in the Bible, there's text for example when joseph was given uh pharaoh's seal his seal ring that you would use to impress into uh papyrus documents in order to show like uh, this this document is associated with the authority of the pharaoh for example so the documents themselves papyrus documents don't survive from the ancient near east uh, they're all for the most part decayed but the seal rings, which are, they're made out of little pieces of carved stone, they do survive. And we've discovered literally th thousands of them. Some of them belonging even to biblical figures and biblical kings. But, all right, so, so the Creation Museum has displays where they suggest that um, in the Bible, for example, where Isaiah talks about fiery flying serpents in the desert, or he'll use it as a metaphor for political rulers, for example, the Creation Museum believes maybe there were pterodactyls literally flying around in the Judean desert uh, during the late Iron Age. Um, and it's, it's actually a pretty good text to argue that from. Why would the Bible talk about fiery flying serpents in the desert? And what, what I found in my master's thesis is that uh, we have one of the most common uh, artistic themes during this period of the late Iron Age that we find on seals are winged serpents. So it's an Egyptianized form of art that got transported into Judah and Israel where you have a cobra and its, its hood is emphasized into the form of wings. And uh, it, ta it takes a while to, to get to this conclusion, but most scholars believe that 
the seraphim in the Bible are actually serpentine divine beings that are depicted on these seals. And partly the way that we know that is because the word seraph in Hebrew means serpent. So, so what I've argued in the book is that when you look at the seals, uh, when you look at Egyptian art of the period, it's pretty obvious that when Isaiah talks about these fiery flying serpents, we literally have seals from guys that Isaiah worked with in, uh, in the court of Uzziah, where they have these uh, winged serpents on their seal. So I've argued that no, it's, it's not pterodactyls. It's this Egyptian form of art. It has its own mythology all behind it. It was transported into Judah and Phoenicia like uh, many, many centuries before these texts were written. And yeah, the, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no evidence that there were pterodactyls. Uh, Fire breathing. At the pterodactyls. Yeah. yeah, some creationists actually believe that pterodactyls fire breathed because the word seraph, it means serpent in Egyptian and in uh, Semitic languages in general, but it can also, it's the root of the word for fiery. So a lot of Bibles will translate it fiery flying serpents. The reason they're fiery, of course, is because they're, they're cobras, they're venomous. But like uh, Bodhi Hodge, for example, has an article where he, he, he thinks that they breathe fire, uh, like Leviathan. Well, you know, um, I, what's next here? Are you going to say that unicorns are just an imaginary um, beast? I mean, they appear in the Bible, don't they, Ben? <laughs> yeah, so I, I have a really short chapter on that. Uh, <laughs> so uh, for people who aren't familiar with the Bible or particularly the King James Version, you might think I'm just being flippant here, but the translators of King James did translate a Hebrew word that they were kind of unsure about, if I remember uh, right, as unicorn. And so now there are young earth creationists defending the idea that the unicorn actually did exist and they've got some fossil evidence to prove it, I think, right? Or they point to... Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the old King James version, not the, the new King James version, but the old King James version, for example, in Deuteronomy 33, 17, you get verses like this. His glory is the firstling of the bullock and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. Um, so for, for years, uh, uh, atheists have, have laughed at, uh, at believers because they'll quote these verses in the Bible where it talks about unicorns existing. And it kind of talks about them like they're just normal animals run, running around. Um, but the, the Hebrew word here is the word re'em. And Answers in Genesis, they have a bunch of articles on their website where they, and like videos, for example, where they argue that this must be a Pleistocenian a uh, creature that lived alongside humans like over 10,000 years ago uh, called an elasmotherium, which was this, uh, it was this megafauna species with a giant single horn. And they think that this is the origin of unicorn legends and why it's in the Bible that let's see people in the days of Deuteronomy <laughs> in the near East were seeing elasmotheriums and wrote hymns about it and Psalms about it, for example. And what I point out in the book is actually, if, if you know Hebrew uh, subject verb agreement, there are actually, there's at least one text where it says point blank. It talks about the horns, plural of a unicorn. So they're not actually unicorns. They have plural horns. Um, 
creationists, most creationists don't know Hebrew historically. Most of them are scientists. So they totally overlook things like this. So if you look up these passages within any modern Bible translation, it's, it's actually pretty simple. They all translate the, this creature as uh, wild bulls or wild oxen. And we actually, we have an Akkadian cognate for, for this creature that it's pretty obvious there that it's a wild bull. When you go read the Psalms, like I think the one that I just read you, for example, in Deuteronomy, his glory is like the firstling of his bullock. And then there's this parallel like uh, verse structure where it goes on to say his horns are like the horns of unicorns. In terms of the parallel verse structure, it's pretty obvious that this is a wild bull. Yeah, so so from your perspective, um, we really shouldn't be looking in the Bible and thinking that the animals referenced are different forms of dinosaurs or ancient lizards or um, that sort of thing. Can, can you so imagine if can you imagine if there were dinosaurs like I don't know, like in the in the New Kingdom period of Egypt? Like, I know I know the Creation Museum will claim that you'll get little like drawings of dinosaurs and ancient texts and that sort of thing every once in a while, but. Honestly, if human beings were actually living alongside these creatures, they'd be absolutely everywhere, like in the art, for example. And it's just, it's so totally absurd to think about that people actually believe this. Well, it's interesting, uh, this, this dialogue about dinosaurs, because if, if you read the deconversion testimonies of uh, people, it comes up over and over. I, I know Paul Logia first started to question his faith when he was researching dinosaurs because he was doing a graphic novel about it. Uh, my wife and I just uh, rewatched um, the deconstruction testimonies of the YouTubers Rhett and Link, and uh, yeah. it was yeah, it was their introduction to young Earth creation in college that I think set Rhett on on a on kind of a spiral uh, away from the faith. And certainly when he gives his recommendations out at the end of his testimony, all three of them have to do with evolution. So your inspiration for writing this book, I'm, I'm curious, Ben, is it is it as a safety net for those people who don't necessarily need to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Are you trying to be like Michael Heiser was to you? In other words, to say that you mentioned that atheists laugh at um, the idea that <laughs> unicorns are in the yeah. Bible. So I know you're correcting young earth creation or at least challenging it on the basis of it, but what actually was your inspiration going into this? Obviously you didn't want to just kick a hornet's nest to get in a Twitter war with Ken Ham. Is it, is it because you don't want Christianity uh, or at least the old Testament to be viewed as kind of a clown car? um by the outside world that's that's a pretty good uh, summary of it um ironically i think uh i hate to say this kind of because it's kind of mean but i think organizations like answers and genesis as sincere as they are they're kind of the best players on team atheism <laughs> just in terms of making uh, the bible look ridiculous but when I started writing the book, I, I was doing it from sort of an apologetics angle, and I, I eventually became more agnostic and decided to write it from a more neutral standpoint. 
So I, I tried to angle it just as biblical scholarship, um, sort of neutral biblical scholarship. And I'm trying to think what, what was my motive that guided me? I think what you said is actually pretty accurate that I, I don't like the Bible being treated in this facile way. Um, cause I have a lot of respect and love for it. And, uh, a lot of it was motivated by uh, just the experience, for example, of discovering Michael Heiser's work where um, falling in love with the Bible and like how, how important and meaningful it was to me in my life. And I'd like to be able to share that with other people. And I think it's the, cre the Creation Museum is just the perfect place to do that. Um, I think they've created the perfect like uh, dramatic it's, it's sort of like a, a dramatic place where you can discuss these issues like in, in dramatized form with all the displays in the museum and that sort of thing. One thing that I find that's really interesting is we've done a number of these interviews and so often uh, we're interviewing someone and, and their comment it is that because of their love for the Bible, because of desiring to read it and understand it faithfully, that that is a major reason why they reject young earth creationism because they don't interpret the young earth perspective on how to understand scripture as being a very faithful representation of what the bible is trying to communicate would you agree with that yeah i would <laughs> um i think i think like the the leviathan example that i've been going back to for for example, when you're when you read Job and you're interpreting this thing as like a National Geographic special and that this is like an actual animal that existed, you're missing all of like the ancient Near Eastern uh, con conception of, of like this chaos comp and uh, how God sustains the created world against chaos and like all the associations with the ancient creation myths of Israel's neighbors and all of that, all of that you have to end up ignoring or pushing aside because you're too busy trying to turn the texts into an apologetics platform. You talk about Genesis, the very beginning of the Bible, the verses one, chapter one, verses one through three, that there are a couple different ways that that has been translated over the years. And you walk through what, what you think is the, the best, um, you know, you make a case for one particular tra translation or interpretation. Um, t tell us what, what you think on that. All right, so it is a little bit complicated, but so most of us, we grew up like with uh, most English translations will translate Genesis 1-1 as in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the Creation Museum, they, they take this to mean that in the beginning means the beginning of space time and the creation of the heavens and earth means essentially the creation of the universe. So they believe on this basis that you can date the universe back to about 6,000 years old, not just the earth, but the universe itself. <laughs> so they have this entire um, planetarium in the creation museum that Jason, Jason Lyle, uh, the creationist astrophysicist was all was behind where it argues that the universe itself is only 6,000 years old. And uh, the problem with this 
is that most top tier biblical scholars have been rejecting this translation for quite some time now. For example, in the New Jewish Publication Society Bible, which is the most popular translation uh, used within Judaism, it translates the passage as roughly uh, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. And the basis for this translation is it has to do with an issue with a vowel point that doesn't exist in a single in a single manuscript on earth that you would need in order for the passage to be translated with the article the. And so I go into all the mechanics in the book of why um, top tier biblical scholars, you know, guys at, like guys at Yale and, and Harvard and uh, and Cambridge and so forth, why they often do not hold the trend, the traditional translation that the creation museum does. But aside from all the grammatical uh, components in the text, what happens when you translate the text as a relative clause as when God began to create the heavens and the earth is that it, the text becomes very uh, syntactically complex and very syntactically odd, but in a way that's, very, very, very similar to uh, tons of other ancient Near Eastern creation accounts. So in ancient Mesopotamia, this sort of structure of when so-and-so began to create, and then there's this large parenthetical clause, and then it gets to the main clause, maybe, you know, three or four verses later. This was very, very uh, standard in terms of genre for ancient creation myths of the time. And the chance that such an odd syntactic structure in Genesis could align with all these other odd syntactic structures that are similar within these other creation myths is, is almost impossible. Like it's, I think it's, it's virtually beyond question that this, uh, that the Jewish publication society translation, this relative clause translation has to be the correct one. So what that implies the upshot of this is that Genesis 1-1 isn't describing creation ex nihilo. In other words, when God arrives on the scene to do the creating, all of the chaos that he's creating from has already been sitting around for we don't know how long. And you can still believe the doctrine of creation ex nihilo based on other biblical verses, but what I'm saying is that it's not explicit within Genesis 1-1 syntactically. Um, and this is what probably the majority of top tier Hebraists believe now. Uh, so the essentially the upshot of all of this is that you can't say that the universe from just exe purely exegetically, you can't say that Genesis 1-1 is uh, saying that the universe is 6,000 years old. We don't know how old it is based on the text and based on its syntax. So it's interesting because when I saw you comparing um, the, that opening structure to a bunch of other um, similar passages in other cultures, um, the thought that came to me was when we say once upon a time, um, mm -hmm. how that has a very specific meaning and genre and context to us, even though the words could just simply be talking about, you know, back in the past, this thing happened. Um, but if you were to compare all the stories that begin with once upon a time, 
it would be like, oh, this is meaning something kind of specific. And, and that's kind of what I drew out of that section was that this clause structure is a common starting point for these creation account stories um, that set, set their cultures, gods up for who they are and what's going on and, and how their understanding of cosmology is or was, I guess, at the time. And, um, and the reason why that, I like it, yeah, I was going to say the reason why I started that section with that example is that it's kind of, uh, kind of jarring and disorientating that probably one of the most famous lines in human history, one of the most studied verses in human history, uh, we've discovered through modern linguistic analysis and through just comparative texts from the ancient world that translating it uh, for mm -hmm. centuries now. Not everyone, there have always been ancient Jews going back to, for example, the Middle Ages that were aware of the, the script issues of the text. Hmm. But yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you that, again, that it's such an odd way, such a crazy way to open a creation account that there's no way that it's by coincidence. It, it has to be this relative clause structure known from other Mesopotamian texts. This is also why I don't believe that Moses himself, like uh, that Genesis 1-1 was written directly by Moses unedited um, because it's it's clearly full of all these Mesopotamianisms, which is uh, something that the creation wouldn't one like me saying yeah. probably. For somebody who's got a stormtrooper sitting on the shelf behind her, I'm surprised you didn't go with a long, long time ago. In the galaxy, in the far, galaxy far, away. far, far away. <laughs> but here's where you're opening yourself up to, you, you two um, compromisers. And that is when you, you grant that kind of language, basically you're saying that Genesis isn't real. Right? So this is what Ken Ham would say is, is now this is really about biblical authority. And, and now you're just leaving Genesis on the level of an Aesop's fable how do you respond to that actually ben first but christine i'm 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 being facetious i know how you'd answer it but uh, ben how do you answer I, the the critique that you have now attacked biblical authority and if genesis isn't true then the resurrection can't be trusted and the whole um bone structure of the bible from the fall to all the way to redemption and reconciliation falls apart. I'll say I'll say that I don't know. Uh, mm -hmm. I'd be interested. I, I know you two interview a lot of uh, apologists. Uh, I'd be interested to see what your opinion is here. But I don't. I don't have a. I don't feel prepared to give an answer to that question. I don't think. I'd lose half my audience if I answer it. So I'll let Christine go first. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to go with uh, about 30% of Jesus' teachings were parables, made-up stories that communicated a spiritual truth. Um, they don't have to have physically happened for them to communicate God's spiritual truths to us. I think that it's possible that, and maybe even probable, that the account in Genesis 1, um, 1, 2, 3, is similar to that type of a situation where it communicates a spiritual truth that does not depend on being 
literal history in the same way as a documentary? My short answer and would have to point you to a longer work is I just don't think God is that inefficient a communicator to rely on the library, solely the library we call the Bible um, uh, to communicate infinite truth. Or, 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 so I have no problem with uh, understanding um, Genesis as not being history or, or narrative or something that God whispered to the ancient people. I do believe in biblical inspiration. I don't believe in um, elevating the Bible to be the fourth member of the Godhead. But if I was answering Ken Ham, you know, if we were on a talk show and I was answering Ken Ham, he would basically have the upper hand with most of the Christian listeners because um, they, they'd probably be picking up stones to stone me for my, my view of biblical inspiration. But uh, I think my view of biblical inspiration is, is kind of what Paul says about it and no more. I, I reject the idea of inerrancy and infallibility as described today as kind of an overreaction to the German critics by people who are trying to fortify a house of cards that, that really, in a sense, I'm grateful for people like Bart Ehrman who kind of lifted up the skirt on, on a kind of fundamentalist understanding of the Bible. I just think that creates another house of cards as weak as young earth creation and it helps create atheists by making the bible more of of, of what i believe it is i i do find inspiration uh in the bible but i you know that if genesis is just a story i i think i would say this ben i know it's a convoluted answer but I think when we make Genesis about history and science, we completely lose the theology that's being taught there. And so um, I appreciate any uh, argument like John Walton's and like yours that says there, there's something else going on here and you're completely missing it. I, when I was a pastor, I used to compare it to the story of... Uh, Oh, uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And if, if you go to YouTube right now and you Google that passage, 99% um, of the response to that passage is an argument uh, about hell. <laughs> and when Jesus, um, that's not what Jesus was talking about in that story. He was kind of giving a dramatic view of two basic things. And, and the first thing is what profit does a man who gained the whole world but loses his soul. Uh, and we miss that. We miss the theology of, of, of Lazarus and that story. And the second thing was if, if God did raise Lazarus from the dead, people wouldn't believe him because they haven't believed the law and the prophets before him. So I do think we miss the bigger story. Um, to me, I, I know uh, I'm not an academician, and John Walton kind of chuckled when I brought it up to him, but I've always taught Genesis as a, a wedding story. I think the Bible's built on, on the idea of a wedding, just like uh, the Lord of the Rings was. Uh, it starts with a garden wedding. Jesus inaugurates his, his career with a wedding at the wedding of Cana, and it finishes with a wedding reception. And to me, Genesis 1 and 2 is, is God is making a wedding present that he delivers to the first couple. I have a simple view. <laughs> but I do like the temple view of Walton. 
Uh, I don't know if I've answered the question either. I was just curious as to what you say. But I, I do think it is a compelling argument when Ken Ham comes out and says, if you don't, this is the foundation of the whole gospel, right? The idea that Adam was real, that Adam fell, that original sin, you know, Augustine, hat tip to Augustine, was passed on to all the progeny, and uh, Jesus fixes that. The second Adam or the last Adam fixes that. And if you mess with the first Adam, then you don't have the last Adam. I think that's a compelling argument. And I think we need to have a concise response to that because it's very difficult to tell people who aren't familiar with the Bible and the fact that it's not a book, that Moses didn't come down from the mountain with uh, 39 books and that Jesus didn't come out of the tomb with 27 that it's a collection, it's a library. Some libraries are bigger than others. Some are smaller than others. There's been arguments over it. Men had their greasy hands all over it. And so we need to take it as, as uh, something less than golden tablets uh, passed down from the hand of God himself. Um, but I think that's Ken's most compelling argument because it appeals to simple people who don't really know a lot about for example, how the Bible was put together and, and, and what you're talking about, uh, the fact that uh, the Hebrew root meanings. Uh, people think that Jesus spoke in Greek <laughs> and, and that uh, the Gospels aren't a translation from the Aramaic in, in a sense. So I, I think it appeals, this idea of a plain reading of Genesis, that this is what it says. As Luther said, this is what the Bible says. And the idea that God said it, I believe it and that settles it, is a fundamental aspect for at least a lot of Christians in the Western world. Um, who I think that's human nature, right? I mean, yeah. nobody, everyone kind of likes the simple and the easy and, and hard work is hard work. And, and a lot of us kind of would prefer to chill and not, not have to put in the hard work. Um, and, and especially when there's so much going on in our lives around us and we just want to, you know, get fed something simple and, uh, it, it, you know, it's, it is appealing to just have something really simple and not have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, John, I think you and I have a pretty similar view of mythology. Whether can you whether it's literally that, true ben, or can not, you, can you start that again? It broke up a little in the middle of your sentence, so just start with that thought again. Yeah. I, I think you and I have a pretty similar view of mythology. Um, in terms of mythology, is a it encodes a platform of action for ancient people. This is it. It's civilizations and people groups like uh like the ancient jews that have lived as if genesis one is true that its fundamental assumptions about reality metaphysically are true with this whole weird story with a talking snake and you know these cherubim that are bouncers over a garden and and this chaos conf cos cosmogony it's very interesting that people that believed this ancient mythic system, whether it's literally true or not, they found it to be extremely utile for interacting with the world. 
extremely effective to the degree that their civilization has prospered for thousands of years. Um, I think civilizations that have mythologies that aren't, that don't essentially get the metaphysics of the world correct, those civilizations tend to fall because their assumptions about reality are, are incorrect. Um, so, so I have, I have a tremendous amount of respect for to the degree that it's inspired or not, maybe we could be agnostic, but I think one thing that you have to admit about the Bible is that whatever the mythology is saying behind it, whatever it's saying about the fundamental nature of reality, it has to be pretty accurate for it to have yielded this much benefit to civilizations that believed it for this long. I think that's a really good point. Um, and, and I think that's something similar to what Den Dennis Lamoury would say, um, in that these spiritual truths that it's communicating are eternally true in all times and all cultures. It transcends just the culture of people from thousands of years ago and, and still is applicable even today. Um, it reminds me of the passage that says the word of God is living and, and active. Um, and it's, it still applies today, even right. when we can see that the ancient science is not the right current understanding. Well, let me, let me present some of this simplistic truth that is very uh, compelling <laughs> to most Christians. And it's in, in the form of something that uh, when debating a King James only advocate, he said to me about, uh, about the, the blessed King James. And that is that uh well your family was a missionary family ben so you understand that when you're trying to communicate a story in a different language sometimes it's very difficult we had christy hempel on recently and and she's dealing with some dialects down in mexico and they aren't warlike at all so talking about the armor of god was just a really foreign concept to them so let me put it this way. He said, when I want to hand somebody the word of God, I hand them the King James, you know, and uh, I don't have to worry about studying the Greek or uh, the ancient Hebrew culture. It's, it's just plain right there as Paul spoke it in, in the Queen's English. Um, so, and I'm, I made up that part at the end, but um, so, so, so how does one communicate say as your father did or your family did to um simple to children or to people who haven't grown up oh we just lost them oh no oh there he is right, so let me start with this question again um ben how do you communicate to a child or, for example, to somebody who has no background in the Bible or the redemption story? Uh, how do you make the argument that um, they don't need a seminary degree? They don't need to know about the, you know, the ancient Near East myths. If, if you and Ken Ham were getting your hair cut in the same barbershop and trying to appeal to the same person, he would say you could just take it for what it says uh, and trust it as the gospel. How, how do you answer that? The idea that um, John Walton uh, and Michael Heiser um, 
are 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 really um, would really be foreign if if Augustine were here or Luther or Calvin uh, sat in a living room with them. They'd really be shocked because they didn't have uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls or or the um, ancient Near Eastern or the tablets, the cuneiform tablets to 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 look at and to go through. The plain reading of scripture is the argument that most people give that if God is an efficient communicator, why would I need a seminary degree or a guy like you um, who's studied these ancient seal symbols and all this to just understand just the, just uh, is God that inefficient of a communicator that I would have to, you know, watch hours and hours of YouTube to to discern this cryptic statement from from God. Well, I, I think a good analogy would be um, you or I, we could go pick up any English translation of Homer's Odyssey and we would under we'd follow the story. We'd enjoy it. We'd understand it pretty well. But the text is it's also sufficiently complex enough that you could probably dump your entire life into studying it uh, into you know, going and learning ancient Greek and maybe I'm, I'm quite sure you would, you would have some places where maybe there would be just like dramatic revelations about, Oh, I totally misunderstood this text on the plain, simple reading because now I, I've invested all this time and energy into understanding it. So I don't think the Bible is any different really. Um, it, I know it kind of jars people if they read my book, just how much, how many, I, I kind of enjoy taking plain and simple readings and showing where they're wrong uh, to, to try to wake people up. But for the most part, I think anybody just reading a good standard translation, like uh, they're going to understand the vast majority of the Bible, especially it's like salvation concepts and that sort of a thing. But uh, I think one thing that the Creation Museum doesn't maybe think about so much is so, so I've been accused very often of advocating for academic elitism, this mm -hmm. idea that you need to have all these degrees and learn these ancient languages in order, in order to understand your Bible. And I think the response there is, if you're reading a Bible in English at all, you're already relying on a network of hundreds of scholars and decades and decades of research, mm -hmm. manuscriptologists, even if you were to go online and look at the Dead Sea Scrolls online and read them, you know, straight from the ancient texts or, or go to the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts and read all of their papyrus documents, you'd still be relying on all those scholars who compiled all those documents. Uh, so I think that we're all hopelessly dependent on scholars. And then you have, you have to also consider that for the vast majority of Christian history, I, for the mass, for the vast majority of history, most people didn't own a Bible. There's no way they would have been able to afford one. Most people couldn't read. Um, the New Testament was delivered to the overwhelmingly illiterate people of Rome. Uh, they didn't even have the full canon. You had like the entire Old Testament history where no one had access to the New Testament. So I don't see any problem whatsoever, you know, theologically that God would reserve the understanding of part of important parts of his word to uh, scholars living after a certain time period. It's always been that way. Uh, I think it's kind of privilege of us as modern people to, to just assume that ancient people would have had access to, you know, a Bible that they could just pick up off a shelf and read, for example, when most of them didn't. 
What a great answer, um, the analogy to uh, Homer. Uh, I find myself, I need the annotated version of much of what C.S. Lewis writes because his education is such that he refers to stories that should be familiar to me that I've never heard of. So I'm looking up who, who he's referring to. So yeah, when you go back that far in time, of course we're going to need study helps. Uh, to get the finer points, which is what you're trying to say, right? To get some of the deeper truths. Yeah. That might Human be nature is uniform enough that even ancient people, they're, they're strikingly similar to we are. Even in like a culture that's totally alien, like uh, the ancient Levant. Um... In your book, you have a, a comment about the role of the Holy Spirit in helping us study and and you liken it to um, a lazy student who doesn't study for a test and just prays that the Holy Spirit will help him or her know all of the answers. Would you expand on this idea? It's kind of along what we've been talking. Uh, yeah, so in the book, uh, my whole life I was kind of raised in Paul. Pull it up real quick. Yeah, 1 Corinthians 2.14, where Paul says, But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he is not able to know them because they are spiritually appraised. So my whole life I was kind of taught in church that this means that um, in order to understand the Bible, you need to be a Christian, you need to have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's job is when you're reading the Bible, you pray to him and he explains the text to you. Um, the problem with this is probably most New Testament scholars, certainly most uh, hermeneuticians teaching at conservative seminaries don't believe this is a correct interpretation of this verse. What Paul is actually saying is when he says people don't accept the things of the Spirit of God, the Greek implies that he's actually saying that they, they understand them, but they reject the message. So you need the Holy Spirit Paul's saying here that you need the Holy Spirit in order to uh, accept, for example, the gospel and Jesus' teachings, that sort of a thing. So uh, I, I, I'm not a New Testament scholar, but I don't think that, we, that Christians have grounds for this idea that the way that you understand your Bible is just praying and then the Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally zap that information into your head. I suppose that could happen. God can do whatever he wants, but uh, it's not like that should be standard operating procedure for interpreting your Bible. You actually need to pick up a commentary. You actually might have to go learn some Greek. And uh, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but one thing, this reminds me of a story <laughs> that happened to me that, that kind of that kind of irritated me a bit. But th there was this uh, PhD scholar that I knew that he went to my seminary and uh you know, he had been studying Greek for years. And one time he took his Greek New Testament to a Bible study. And uh, I know this guy, he's one of the most humble people that I know. But he told me that he was essentially pulled aside by some elders and told, you know, you shouldn't be bringing a Greek New Testament to to Bible study. It, it looks, uh, it's kind of elitist for you to bring it there, for you to bring it and, and be reading it like with other people seeing and, you know, maybe he was acting elitist, maybe he was acting arrogant, I wasn't there, but I don't think by his character that he, he would ever do such a thing. And I remember just thinking in that moment, like, 
imagine imagine you were Jewish and you you brought your uh, you brought a, a Hebrew text to synagogue. Like no one would bat an eye. No one cares. But Ben, as it was startling to you to find out about the kidneys when you saw that verse, it's going to be startling for some who read your book and find out that because of their view of scripture, that, yeah, Paul was wrong about something that, you know, Jesus was kind of wrong about the smallest seed that Paul's wrong here about hair. And this is going to act like, I don't know, a hand grenade in the middle of their uh, bar mitzvah. Um, you don't mean it that way, but um, how much does the idea, does our understanding of how to read scripture affect the topics you're talking about here, uh, uh, affect what, what we think of the age of the earth or how we treat modern science? In other words, you right. reserved a whole third of your book for this topic. So you must have thought it's crucial to to make these adjustments in our thinking. Is that right? Right. So what I argue in the book is that if you're going to believe in a theory of inspiration, the theory that you articulate should emphasize what is, you know, the bottom line of a claim in the Bible. Like what is the main point of a verse? So to give you an example, when uh, when David prays to God, Lord, instruct my kidneys, his main point in that text is not, you know, knowledge about nephrology or neurology. His point in that text is, Lord, please make me wise. Um, so I don't think that it it's not fair to say that that text is incorrect or that it that it has an error in it, because that's not the point of what David's trying to say. And I think if you are going to believe in a theory of inspiration, you essentially should be taking that sort of route to understanding the Bible. That seems to be at least the most powerful, most workable one to me. So what I argue is that this this can have implications, for example, for understanding the the seven day creation of Genesis. So why why does Genesis have the the world created in seven days? The reasons it's pretty obvious in terms of ancient literature and internal literature to the Bible itself. In the ancient Near East, the inauguration period for a temple is seven days. And we know based on just dozens and dozens of parallels between uh, temple building texts within the Bible itself and uh, Genesis 1, that Genesis 1 is depicting the creation of the, of the universe as a temple. So I think an accommodationist could easily just say, look, the purpose of, of Genesis 1 is not to give like a geological account of the creation of the world. I mean, the Genesis 1 addresses some really weird things and has really weird elements just because it's polemic and it's combating other ancient Near Eastern mythologies. So the creation of the seven days, what its main point is, what the authors are essentially saying is that the universe is Yahweh's temple. And you might ask, well, does that mean that it's wrong? Literally, yeah, it's wrong. But that doesn't mean that like the main point of the text isn't wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I've been kind of filibustering. Uh, Christine, I only have a couple more questions. Uh, I know we, we, we're running a little bit long, but uh, jump in if, if you have something you want to say. 
Well, I was just going to follow up on that. Um, you know, how do, what prevents us from going down some slippery slope and just kind of making the Bible say whatever we, we want it to say or just willy-nilly picking what we don't like and saying, well, I mean, that that part's wrong or I don't I don't believe that part's right. Or, Are you acting uh, like that doesn't happen? <laughs> well, Isn't that the history happen. of the church? Well, but I'm sorry, I'll let you finish your question. So, so what kind of... Um, I don't know, spiritual breaks or, or tools does a scholarly approach help prevent us from just willy-nilly making scriptures say something it doesn't really say? Well, I definitely don't think it, this view makes scripture unfalsifiable. I can think of plenty of, of, of examples, for example, where the Bible... If you had a text where like the Bible was claiming to reveal that the the conscious the seat of the consciousness is in the kidneys, it would clearly be wrong. But uh, I think the main thing is you have to be able to provide arguments. It's very, very obvious that Genesis one one is a is a, that's the main point of it. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of an example of a way that it could be falsified. So, well, okay, then, I, I can think of one yeah. one one example where where I think the Bible just might be wrong. Like, the, you could falsify its inspiration. Is for example the claim that childbearing is painful for women because of the curse because. No, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that thought. I, I don't yeah. think I've developed. Well, Ben, that's on one of the criticisms that we've heard on a couple of our episodes from uh, some of our listeners who, who are atheists. And one of them wrote in response to Walton, uh, he wrote, that's the thing with you Christians. Whenever science uh, proves your book wrong, you just reinterpret your book. And... I hate to admit that seems to be a valid criticism. Um, and although I'm not dismissing John Walton's work in that way, I know that I know he wasn't just look, shopping for something to make sense of Genesis. Uh, but, uh, you know, Christine's question kind of, you know, if you look at it post-Reformation, when it's 30 some thousand different splinter groups, because we take the Bible differently, you know, or because we argue over is baptism full immersion or sprinkling and, and things seem to get in the way so often of what maybe the author was just trying to communicate. So uh, I hate to put you up against the wall on this, but as somebody who has said a couple times in this interview that you have a love and deep respect for the Bible, in the long run, has the Bible been helpful in communicating uh, God's word? I'm not sure I can answer that. Hmm. Just in like spiritually right now, I'm a lot more agnostic than hmm. most people would be with regards to the, to the degree to which the Bible is inspired. 
But I think the the quote that the reference that you gave to that atheist criticism that Christians just reinterpret everything, I think that's definitely accurate. Um, it is a legitimate criticism. One point you could bring up also is that metaphysical and philosophical claims, for example, are totally falsifiable. It's perfectly conceivable that the Bible could make, for example, a theological claim that could be falsified. And I'm sure there's there's a lot of things that you could in the Bible that you could weigh uh, that that you could look at uh, in order to try to make that argument, but I haven't gone looking for them or compiled them. Who should buy your book, Ben? And um, what's the audience that will appreciate it the best? And then maybe you could tell us a little bit about your inspiration for. Uh, your translation, or uh, I should say, interpretation of the Golden Saints. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would like for some young Earth creationists to buy it. <laughs> uh, I think uh, a, a lot of the guys who have been buying it right now are uh, big fans of John Walton and Michael Heiser. But uh, I wrote the book originally. It was uh, for the homeschooling Christian organization Sunlight. I ended up publishing it myself for uh, for reasons I won't go into. But uh, I worked with uh, John Holzman was my editor. He's a really good friend of mine. And uh, so, so it's written. I, I know a lot of the ideas that I've discussed sound kind of complex, but it's written at the high school level. Uh, and it's essentially it uses the Creation Museum as an excuse to uh, jump into uh, unpacking how Bible interpretation works. So I would say, uh, yeah, anyone in the anyone interested in the subject of uh, uh, the Creation Museum and Young Earth creationism, uh, going down to high school level, it'd be appropriate for. In terms of uh, the golden sayings of Epictetus, so... Uh, at the Southern Baptist Seminary, I took a class with a uh, with a scholar named Jim Orrick, and he he did a great book seminar. And with all the books that exist within Western civilization that he could have chosen, he picked Epictetus as one of the main texts that we studied. Uh, Epictetus is one of the fathers of Stoic philosophy. Uh, one of the like next to Seneca, Marcus Aurelius, we have a uh, Mo those are the Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and, and uh, Seneca are like the main Stoic writings that have survived into the present. And uh, after I took the class, the translation of Epictetus that we were using was so convoluted that I decided to make my own so he could use it for, uh, for his studies. But yeah, I've gained a lot of... Uh, I've gained a lot of benefit and insight from stoicism as a philosophy. I wanted, I, I do, I wanted to ask John, what, what is uh, your connection with stoicism? So um, I'm glad you asked that. I've, uh, my brother gave me the golden sayings when I was younger and I, oh, wow. I became interested in, and I always butcher his name Epictetus, but um and so just this story is fascinating, you know, um, being that close to New York. As a matter of fact, there's been some for forged letters 
between Paul and Epictetus um, that that are I, I don't believe they're real. I don't know where you are on that, Ben. But his no. <laughs> wisdom his wisdom was similar to Paul in some areas and language was similar to what Paul was communicating in the New Testament, so much so that the Roman church considered him a, a righteous pagan, Epictetus. And uh, so I've always been fascinated in him, more so than Marcus Aurelius, just because Aurelius had some baggage with his um, treatment of Christians. Um, and uh, I've just, I thought, um, I just thought, Epictetus' story is fascinating. I'd love to see it made into a movie, you know, the relationship to kind of Nero's chief of staff and, and that whole thing and him becoming free because of what happened with Nero and all that. But I, I appreciate his wisdom. I, I think there's a lot in Stoicism that is to be lauded. Um, Admiral Stockdale um, basically... Oh, yeah prides his stoic understanding for from getting him through the hanoi hilton experience and so i guess that was the first time that i became interested when i heard stockdale i heard number of people who were in the hanoi hilton with stockdale say everyone broke but him <laughs> now if you yeah read yeah stockdale, I, I wrote about a i wrote about yeah. stockdale's story at the in the introduction Oh, beautiful. So, well, one of the things I want is, is a copy of your book, and I was going to order it off of Amazon, but no, that's not good enough. I want a signed copy, so we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about how <laughs> yeah, I get maybe a signed copy from you after that, but um, I'll probably uh, ask for three so I could give my sons a copy. Uh, but So that's my interest. Um, the, the relationship, I've been fascinated by... Nero, just because of his connection to biblical events. And then you find out that Epaphroditus was kind of, I think, the owner uh, or the master to the slave who became this just, um, if it wasn't for the death of Nero, we might never have heard of Epictetus, right? Or Epictetus. Um, so I am, but what, you know, so it was a professor that got you interested. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I had never uh, read too much of Stoicism, and like he, he was uh, all fired up about the book. When I first read Epictetus, I didn't understand most of it, and I wasn't particularly. A couple of his statements took me, and I ended up reading him again and over and over, and then uh, realizing how powerful a lot of it was. Um, particularly for those listening, you could go onto YouTube. There's a book called The Inquirition by Epictetus. I think it's like the most punchy sort of condensed summary of Stoic philosophy that exists. Uh, if, if I was going to like suggest one text, introduce someone to Stoicism, that would be. Yeah. Because both Seneca and Aurelius have baggage. I mean, I'm not disputing their wisdom. But I mean, Seneca was a great teacher, but then he had that horrible student named Nero, right? <laughs> so uh, that's rough to get over. But um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. But I was going to say, I guess for those not familiar with Stoicism, it's essentially a philosophical platform for 
enduring suffering nobly. Um, yeah, it's it's a very, very powerful um, set of philosophical principles that'll help you endure suffering. And uh, Stockdale, who we were talking about, he's a guy that, uh, he was given a copy of Epictetus in college by a professor, I believe, ended up going into Vietnam and he was captured by the Vietnamese and tortured endlessly. Uh, and he, he never broke, he never gave away information because of uh, implementing Stoic philosophy. Fascinating. Do you, we do you just have finished, anything? Um, yeah, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Chris. We just finished N.T. Wright's study on Philippians, and N.T. Wright kind of contrasts Stoicism um, with some of Paul's teachings. And, yeah, yeah there, there's a ton. I think Paul was definitely educated to some degree in Stoicism, you know, as the mainstream philosophical movement of the day. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, growing up in Tarsus, you'd think he would be. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, it makes I think you he had a lot of be... respect for it too. Even, yeah. you know, despite despite all his disagreements for it, right? Well, and it makes you want to be a fly on Mars Hill, right? Or, but, but I mean, earlier in that passage, it says he he was persuading all day in the marketplace. I would have loved to have uh, tagged along on that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, another. Another audience that I think would be really good to, to read this book would be like youth pastors and youth leaders. Um, I think that that would be a really beneficial audience for your book too, um, especially since according to Barna Research, one of the top reasons why young people are leaving the church has to do with the, the thoughts of conflict between Christianity and science and um, the arguing over evolution and, uh, and I think this a lot of a lot of those concerns could be resolved by understanding the background of some of the passages as, as you talk about them in the book yeah I remember uh, I, I was taught evolution was this major international conspiracy my whole life myself and I remember I went into college and I read a Jerry Coyne's book why evolution is true and it just it just totally smashed me in the face, man. It, it was so compelling. That was a very difficult thing to uh, to get over for me. Uh, not so much for theological reasons, actually, uh, but because my entire life, youth pastors in particular, and um, pastors, you know, they'd be even even my theology professors in seminary, they'd be snickering about how stupid evolution was, and then. Here I am, I go read this book with the evidence for it, especially the genomic evidence, and it's just absolutely overwhelming. I remember being just how upsetting that was that I felt like I had been betrayed my whole life. It had they had dissimulated the evidence for evolution and acted confident yes. in, an, in an arena where they really didn't merit it. And their straw man of evolution is kind of ridiculous. It's it's just the fact that they don't they don't really express evolution correctly. Um, and then they tie it to cultural Marxism, which is a huge lead. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and Hitler so I, and yeah, similar experience there. Hitler and abortion. Don't forget yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those, um, fundamentalist or evangelical boogeymen, I think. And I, I've often quipped that I think, um, Darwin might, there might be, um, <laughs> There might be a long line in heaven uh, waiting to apologize to Darwin when we get there. But 
And do you have any final things, Christine? Yeah. You know, I, I don't really have a whole lot else. Oh, you know what? How about high places and mountains? Um, oh, yeah. Would you just touch a little bit on when the Bible talks about high places and mountains? Um, you know, I'm thinking like in Kings and every chapter begins with so-and-so died and then this new king in the third year of what oh, now this other sorry. king becomes and he or she does what is right or he, he does whatever's right or whatever's wrong in the eyes of the Lord by abolishing the high places or worshiping at the high places. Um, would you just talk a little bit about how, how high places are seen in the ancient um, Near East culture and, and what that kind of means? Right. So uh, this is actually like, it's definitely all over the place in the ancient Near East, but even like in the ancient world, I think because of the fundamental architecture of human psychology, like, you know, if you, the ancient Mayans built these, these temples that are kind of like ziggurats or pyramids, and then the Egyptians did. And uh, within, within Asiatic culture, you have this idea that, that you would build temples like in the mountains on high places, but right. So I've got some references like Isaiah two chapter two, verse two and Micah four verse one speak of the mountain of the house of Yahweh. Uh, we talk, the Bible always talks about Mount Zion as being in some sense, Yahweh's abode. You have the 10 commandments delivered on a mountain. Uh, there's a lot of language of Yahweh also dwelling on mountains in the north, which is very, very similar to Ugaritic literature, where the chief deities dwell within the mountains of the north in a place called Zephanu, which in the Bible is called Zephon. And then, uh, strangely enough, Ezekiel 28, verse 16, calls Eden a mountain, which most people don't know that the location of Eden was on top of a mountaintop. And uh, so what's this association of the divine with mountains in the ancient Near East? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that they believed heaven was a literal geography above the sky. And the idea is that, I mean, we just flat out have ancient texts that speculate that some mountains might even like touch the sky. Uh, and it's certainly closer to the sky. So in that sense, it's more divine. So you have, you know, ziggurats are essentially human man-made mountains as like a resting place where the gods can come down and they can dwell so human beings can barter with them. The same thing, roughly speaking, with pyramids. Um, and... The way this translates, for example, into Eden is Eden, you have to understand all of creation is a temple. And then Eden is essentially like the holies of holies within that temple on top of the cosmic mountain where God and his divine beings would essentially congregate. And humanity eventually, humanity essentially participated within that. All right. Well, shall we start with an icebreaker? Sure. What is your favorite dragon legend? And do you think it has any basis on fossils? Uh, so I think my favorite one is, uh, I came across it not even reading Adrian Mayor's books, but uh, I found a 
online I found this old uh, copy of Geronimo's autobiography, The American Apache Indian. And uh, he starts out the, the book talking about the creation myth of his people. And essentially, almost all Native Americans, they believe in this past time when there was, uh, there used to be all these monsters and dragons that lived on the face of the earth. And then some hero twins had to end up uh, take, killing them and entombing them within stone. And in the Apache version of myth, human beings can't uh, proliferate on the earth because there's this giant dragon that eats them all. And this woman has a child. She keeps it in a cave. And then one day the child goes out and decides he wants to hunt his first buck, even though his mom tells him to stay in the cave. The child's name's Apache. And he ends up finding this great dragon that eats all the human beings. And he challenges it to a duel. And that's, uh, the oral legend talks about how he defeats the dragon. Uh, it rolls down into a canyon. And then uh, Geronimo says, you can still go to this canyon in his day and you can see the skeleton of the great dragon. So that w that's a case where it's pretty obvious that the Native Americans, they do this a ton, especially out West. They knew about these ancient fossils and then they uh, would base this early mythology around them. The coolest, the coolest legends in Adrian Mayo's books, I think, uh, in this regard, are uh, she'll have discussions about how far back can oral mythology reach. So, like uh, the Thunderbird legend, she speculated maybe there were um, seventeen-foot wingspan pterosaurs that lived alongside human beings. I think roughly ten thousand years ago, which isn't terribly long. And she wonders if maybe the Thunderbird legends are a distant memory of that. But uh, there's there's all sorts of myths that she lists throughout her books, like uh, the Spanish uh, when they were first exploring the Americas and they found the Maya. Some of the people they actually had a bones on display of what they believed to be great giants, like humanoid giants in the past. And the Spaniards took one of the the thigh bones, sent it back to Spain, and then their paleontologists are like, "Yeah, that's a uh, that's a mastodon." that these people are essentially worshiping as this sort of ancient relic of a giant. Well, I mean, that's understandable though, isn't it? I mean, a lot of, a lot of the stories are, you make sense when you look at the information that they had at the time. Yeah. Well, yeah. You know, I'm curious, I, I'm going to sound like a rube when I give you my quick answer. I'm curious as to what your answer to that question is, Christine. Do what my favorite Dinosaurs or dragon story? Yeah. Um, let's see. Oh, how about Pete's dragon? <laughs> All right, no, fair I'm not, not based on any sort of fossils. I'm not sure Ben knows that, but that that's all right. I, you know, as a Tolkien fan, I'd be I'd be tempted to bring up a, a Tolkien dragon, but to be honest with you, mine is a modern myth, and uh, it's uh, from a movie called Reign of Fire. Um, now, before I uh, talk to you about it, Ben, are you from the UK? I, I know Dominican, you were born in the Dominican. Are you English? No, I'm, I'm American. You are. Okay, then I won't offend yeah. you, and you might even appreciate this story. But Reign of Fire <laughs> is a movie with Matthew McConaughey and uh, Christian Bale, and it's about, um, you know, these miners wake up this ancient beast, and, and, and they fly up and populate 
uh, and they kill all humanity except for these little cloisters. And there's one in England that's, you know, barely uh, keeping it together. And uh, all of a sudden they think they hear a dragon coming and they look out over the castle walls and they see an armored column rolling up. And uh, somebody asks uh, Christian Bale, is it, is, it, is it the dragon? And he says, no, worse, it's, it's the Americans. <laughs> and it's Matthew McConaughey a br- playing this brash American, you know, typically the <laughs> ugly American type person. And yeah. of course, they're coming to save England again. But um, I, I just love that line. No, it's worse. It's the Americans. So that would be my favorite.